Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 52 for October 13th, 2011. So we've been doing it for a year now, Ken. Episode 52. Oh, good point. Good point. I mean, calendar-wise, we already passed the one-year mark, but... uh, Publishing-wise, this Publishing-wise, is the 52nd. There you go. Yeah. Very good. Good point. So we're going to... We're going to finish off our first year the way we began it, with a big spoonful of gold key goodness. Oh, oh yes. And it, it's it's something big and likely to choke us. But... <laughs> so we're going to be reviewing issues 12, 13, and 14 today. Yes. These came out in 1971. November was when the number 12 came out, and ah. we go all the way to May 1972. So. Correct. And Whoa, uh, is that big a gap? Well, you know they go, they do it every like three months or so. Right. It wasn't right. a monthly monthly deal like DC and Marvel have been. There you go. So anyway, so yeah, we got we got three good ones. <laughs> Quote good ones. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's gold key. You got to cut them some slack. Yeah. So but just not to, much. <laughs> so just to give you a little tease. You know, because in case you just can't wait until we get to the synopsis, we got flying carpets, pirates, and dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. And anytime Gold Key dives into dinosaurs, you know we're into good stuff. Oh, yeah. So with that, I guess uh, I'll go ahead and jump into issue number 12. Please do. All right. So next up is Star Trek Gold Key number 12. Uh, This came out in... November 1971, and it is entitled The Flight of the Buccaneer. All right, so the cover is a a, a nice painting, or somewhat nice painting, uh, better than the stock photos that we're used to seeing. But it's a painting of a pirate ship type thing attacking a, like, space shuttle looking craft. And we get a superimposed face of what might be Blackbeard the Pirate. Uh, which later we'll learn is actually Captain Jack. Um, I almost said Captain Jack Black. His name is Captain Blackjack Nova. Oh, you got to slip a little uh, astronomical term in there. I right. know he's from the future. Yeah, so he can't be just Captain Blackjack. He has to be Captain Blackjack Nova. All right. So we start off splash page. Uh, Spock and Scotty are in some flimsy-looking spacesuits. And they're being forced to walk the plank into space. All right, so it starts off with some establishing scenes. We see a futuristic pirate ship disable and loot a Federation supply ship. Uh, then we see the Enterprise uh, tracking a space cruiser to the planet Torga 6. Uh, they're not able to catch up with it, and it lands on the planet. Uh, The crew of the small cruiser are greeted by several seedy-looking pirates, 
And yes, these are pirates that look like they could have been extras from Pirates of the Caribbean Ride. Not the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. These look like Pirates of the Caribbean Ride guys. <laughs> so we're talking about the 19- You mean a lower budget? Oh, we're talking about the 1950s stereotypical pirate movie type pirates. Pirates. Yeah. yeah. Not the, uh, you know, uh, the costumes and stuff in Pirates of the Caribbean are quite a bit different than what you see in the old uh, old pirate movies. Eh. This looks like the old pirate movies that you would have uh, caught late on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Anyways. They're pirates. Let's just go with that. <laughs> and not updated by much. There isn't like a mechanical parrot on anybody's shoulder. But go ahead. No, that would have been pretty cool. But he he does have a, a star name, Nova, a futuristic name. Anyways, uh, when we see that the cruiser, uh, when we see the cruiser's crew, we're shocked to learn that it's McCoy, Spock, Scotty, and Kirk that are dressed up as these pirates. Or actually, that are the uh, crew members that are being greeted by the pirates. Excuse me. All right, so uh, they're being taken to the pirate headquarters. Uh, McCoy has a flashback as to how they got there. So Starfleet found half of a treasure map that leads to a huge quantity of some stolen dilithium that the Federation desperately needs. Uh, It is assumed that the notorious pirate Blackjack Nova has the other half of of the map. So Kirk is supposed to go undercover and get it from him. Uh, Back in the present, Kirk's posse enters a crowded bar and start a fist fight in order to get the attention of Captain Blackjack. It works, and soon Blackjack and Kirk are partners since they both have the two halves of the map. Uh, They go on to the pirate ship called the Windjammer, which we'll talk about later, but it is the fastest pirate ship in all the cosmos and they are en route to the planet Teos 4 uh, not the uh, earlier mentioned one which was Torga 6 so keep it straight guys anyways a member of the Black Jacks crew overhears Scotty and Spock talking very loudly that they are actually Federation agents a very uh, odd thing for those two guys to do at that moment Anyways, Kirk, in an attempt not to blow his cover, he rats out Scotty and Spock to Blackjack. Uh, Spock and Scotty are soon uh, given the flimsy-looking spacesuits that we saw earlier and are pushed off the ship. Uh, And they're supposed to float around in space and slowly suffocate. Pretty cruel way to go. Uh, Just as it looks like it's the end for our favorite Vulcan and engineer... They dematerialize and reappear on the Enterprise. It seems that the Enterprise has been following the Windjammer using the stolen Romulan cloak. Nice reference to the old show. So the Enterprise races to Teos 4 in an attempt to beat the Windjammer there so that they can ambush Blackjack once he has the treasure. They succeed in getting there first. They beam down but are attacked by a grizzled old man named Ben Cannon who has been marooned there for over a year. The Windjammer's shuttle eventually arrives, and the combined map leads Kirk and Blackjack to the spot. Uh, There's no X on the ground, unfortunately. As the pirates start to dig, they do not find the treasure. Enraged, Blackjack thinks Kirk has faked his half of the map and is about to shoot him when his gun is shot out from his hand. 
Sure Shot Spock has come to save the day. Blackjack tries to flee. Um, close to the shuttle, Blackjack and Kirk have a uh, an electron cutlass fight, i.e. a sword fight. It is pretty much a stalemate once you have Kirk's prowess and Blackjack's dirty tricks. Blackjack makes it to the shuttle. Kirk throws a sword at the last moment that ends up cutting the generator tube that causes the ship to crash and kill old Blackjack. The crew end up finding the dilithium in a cave that Ben Cannon had stashed it away back when he was originally abandoned a year ago. Ben claims that he used to be the former captain of the Windjammer, and I'm assuming that that means that Blackjack mutinied and left Ben on the planet knowing that he would eventually come back for the treasure. I don't know. Uh, Anyways, the crew takes the dilithium back to the Enterprise. Thus ends the swashbuckling tale of Star Trek. Now this is the most swashbuckling episode ever. I uh, comic, yes, I would say that. And um, I gotta say the just just the straight adventure aspect of it is about its only saving grace, if I may say so. I think I'm gonna disagree with you a little bit. Uh, I enjoyed the story of this quite a bit. Now the artwork. Uh, does derail it a little bit, uh, or quite a bit, and the uh, the whole idea of the treasure map and X marks marks the spot and stuff that that also derailed it a little bit. But I I enjoyed the undercover aspect and the uh, you know the the pi- I even like the pirate part. Space pirates actually kind of cool to me. I just well, don't uh, like to see them like this. Yeah, and and let me just say that. Okay, here it is. Uh, Pirates in Space itself is not really an unreasonable storyline. I mean, why not? But they they tried to make the ship, the Windjammer ship, look just, I mean, as much like an ocean-faring pirate ship as they could manage. And everybody's dressed up, like you said, as an old 17th century, typical old movie uh, pirate stuff. Um, and they even talk like pirates. I mean... It's it's just ridiculous. Um, I, I I just think it's another example of gold key. Um, I mean, I don't care what age you are. This movie is insulting uh, the, to your intelligence. Uh, the, the comic is insulting to 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 uh, to its readers. However, all that being said, after I got past all the outrageousness of how ridiculous it was. I kind of like the adventure aspects of the story. Mm. So, uh, overall, I mean, for a gold key, um, it's it's not a bad gold key comic. It's just, it's hard for me to get past some of those uh, those aspects I just mentioned. Right, but I could I could totally see this as being a fourth season episode of Star Trek because their mantra. And I think you even gave me the uh, uh, supposedly the original outline for Star Trek that Gene Ronberry did, and in it it said, "We'll use whatever sets from the last movie were made, and we'll kind of wrap an episode around it so that uh, it'll give the watcher, you know, an immediate idea that oh, these are pirates, and just go with it." Uh, you know, they, I could see this as being an episode. I mean, hopefully they would make the ship look a little bit better, but 
I would not put it past them to have not sported these exact same pirate outfits in, in an episode of Star Trek. Well, funny you should mention that. I mean, forget about the pirate outfits, but there was a two-part Star Trek Next Generation episode named Gambit, where Picard takes on the identity of a tough young mercenary, or a tough mercenary, not young, uh, with archaeological expertise that a group of ruthless mercenary treasure seekers enlist to find an ancient Romulan Vulcan artifact. Riker is even on the pirate ship at one point, uh, and Picard basically sacrifices him to cement his relationship with the, with the mercenaries. Uh, Riker ends up getting back to the Enterprise and follows Picard in the mercenary ship. So, as I was reading this comic, there are aspects of it that reminded me of that Star Trek Next Generation episode. It's not the same thing. And certainly, the mercenaries uh, in that episode were not... <laughs> Uh, riding around in a ridiculous pirate ship uh, or, or ridiculous uh, pirate outfits. But um, there was definitely kind of a pirate feel to that uh, that mercenary group. Do you remember yeah. that episode? Oh, absolutely. It's the one that had yeah. Robin Curtis as the Romulan who was pretending to crew be member. a Vulcan. Right. right. Crew member, right. Yep. Uh, a crew member of the mercenary ship. Exactly. She was... Right. Uh, I, I, I just spoiled it for anybody who hadn't seen it, but she turns out to be the true evil person in that on that ship. Exactly. But uh, yeah, no, I, I had the same vibe when I was reading when I was reading this that uh, it it did remind me of that episode. Right. So obviously this comic came out way before Gambit came out, but yeah, whatever. But but could you not see them being the the producers and makers of Star Trek in nineteen sixty something if they got a got a hold of a bunch of pirate stuff. You you couldn't see them making this as an episode. Oh, you're saying Paramount did a pirate movie or something and it's all on the same set, so why not use it? Exactly. I mean, isn't that why <laughs> they did the Western one that one time and why they did, Ooh. you know, uh, Roman things so many times and gangster things so many times? It's just that they had they had the props, they had the wardrobe. Let's let's make it a movie of a, or let's make it a planet that's all 1930 gangsters. Right. Yeah. I could totally see them do a pirate episode. Yeah. Yeah, they could. What parallel Earth kind of thing? Of course, what this is talking about is not a parallel Earth situation. It's one where you're in the future, and people are running around like pirates. But whatever. Yeah. No, I I really like the pirate idea. Uh, I think that that's you know in the, in in a future like this, I could see that as totally being something that's real. But what, but yeah, they being be pirates, in... but in these get-ups? No, I mean, using it, using 17th century pirate lingo? I mean, running around in a... In a, a ship that has big sails on it? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and yes. I mean, and when they and when they take over that ship at the beginning, that that, right. that shows the, uh, the windjammer taking over that ship, they actually throw... You see guys on, on mm. the, the bridge or the, the bow <laughs> of the ship. Yes. Yeah, and they're throwing the ropes and <laughs> shimmying over to the other ship. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's all great, and it's it's definitely consistent with the theme. Right. And as long as you turn your brain off and just go with it, it's great. Yeah, I think we're I think we're agreeing with it. We didn't yeah. like the artwork. We didn't like that they just tried to use 17th century pirate lingo and 
and the look, but overall the story was really good. I just, you know, I didn't like that there was really a paper map out there that was in two pieces that they had to put mm-hmm. together. I thought that was silly. Didn't understand how the Federation even got there half of the map. Uh, but you just go with it, and uh, I thought it was an overall pretty good story. Sure. Um, another point is Tortuga. Tortuga 7, or 6. 6? No, uh, 6, yeah. Yeah. So Tortuga was a um, a Haitian, I guess it was city? Was it a city? Anyway, but that was a big 17th century uh, den of uh, pirates. Ah. Uh, so that was pretty... Well, it, it Tortuga sounded familiar from the uh, Johnny Depp uh, pirates movie. Pirate movies, so I knew it sounded familiar. So I, I just did a quick look up. So it's <laughs> it's 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 in Haiti. So oh, okay, huh. that's cool. Yeah, uh, I do have one more comment about this this comic. They make a interesting statistic. Uh, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Where. Where it states that there's only twelve Federation starships. Exactly. Well, they they say only. I mean, did they even say starships? I thought they just said Federation ships. Maybe they said starships. Whatever. Okay. But still, and they say it's there's only twelve Federation yep. ships or whatever they say to guard the infinite spaceways. Right. What are they talking about? I mean, I think there was more I than twelve. No idea. Twelve ships in the 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 war game episode of the original TV show. Yeah, and and if you want to say, um, I mean, I think there's even right, and I think there's even more. Um, uh, what uh, ga- not galaxy class? Um, Constitution class? Yeah, uh-huh. Constitution. I think there's even more Constitution class vessels. Not to mention all the other different variety of vessels. Uh, I was wondering myself where they got that stat from. Well, and the Enterprise itself, its its registry number is seventeen oh one, and we see other ships that are. 17 and you know 17 something something that's that's i think much higher than 12 yeah I plus mean, that uh, now that's over time also but still yeah I'm i agree about i agree with your point series, the the yeah. three episodes the well, three seasons yeah and uh there was pike's time and there was uh april's time and yeah i mean there you know we're also talking that numbering sequence went over time also oh, I see but even but even given that uh, 12 seems ridiculous. But maybe they're just trying to get across the point that, you know, because they make a big deal about the dilithium crystals. Oh, my God. They stole they stole enough dilithium crystals in one hall that could cripple uh, the entire uh, Federation Starfleet, which I'm, maybe if you have 12 ships, maybe that makes more sense. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I just thought that was weird. Why give it a finite number? Well, and Why I not think say it's... there's there's not enough ships to patrol yeah. all of the infinite spaceways instead of just saying there's only twelve. Yeah, and 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 again, I agree they didn't have to give a number to it, but maybe they were trying to get across the the idea that that stash of uh, dilithium was so important because there was such uh, you know a limited number of ships, whatever. I, right. I, yeah. I that 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 annoyed me also, or just piqued my interest and just seemed definitely uh, bad continuity. Yep. Um, another thing that I, and I just mentioned this before, to you before the um, before the beginning of the episode, there's a couple shots of the Windjammer, which is the pirate ship we've been talking about, uh, which, which is about as close 
uh, to a you know 17th century pirate ship as you could make, and uh, and and be at least somewhat looks like it's space worthy in some way, shape, or form. And in fact, its nacelles look like they are kind of sort of a spin on the Enterprise's uh, engines, sort of. Um, but as I mentioned to you. Looking closely at the nacelles, the first time you see the Windjammer uh, in the book, um, I thought that I had the orientation right, because there's what appears to be uh, a third engine port in the back, or at least it looks like in the back. It kind of looks like in a rudder shape. And then the the, the other side of the ship is a very uh, a sharp point to it uh, with a deflector dish. So I, I think I've got the orientation right, but then I look down at the nacelles, and the back end of it kind of looks like they could be some kind of a rocket exhaust or something. But then looking on the what's supposed to be the front of the nacelles, and they look like the back of the Enterprise nacelles. Yeah, the little bubble, I, the bubble end of the, the right. The cells. So it's, yeah, so it's kind of got that 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 scoop thing kind of thing, and it's got that little bubble, like you're, right, the little red bubble underneath the kind of scoop thing. So I thought that was a weird piece of inconsistency. Uh, but huh. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. But you, if you look at the end, the end of the nacelle matches the rudder thing that's at the end of the the ship itself. So The other end. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I, right. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be some sort of rocket exhaust, but unlike the Enterprise, we never see anything. Oh, I take that back. Uh, at the beginning of <laughs> at the beginning of part two, right after they drop Scotty and Spock off to die, you can see <laughs> fire blasting out of the out of the end of the two nacelles, right, and the yep. rudder. So, yep. Now, what got me was the big sail. I mean, that <laughs> yeah, which which again, obviously, is not a functional sail, but and it's also swept backwards, so it's not it's not just like upright and perpendicular to the rest of the ship. Uh, it is swept back, which makes it a little less of a joke, but still. Yeah, well, I mean, there is a such thing as a solar sail, and in Star Wars, Count Dooku's <laughs> ship had solar sails. So. I, never, I never really liked that design on Star, Star Wars either. Oh, yeah, well, that, that was there just for the beauty of it and the fact that they could do a computer-generated sail like that. Right. But really, a solar sail... Uh, on uh, on a Star Wars ship that's going to be going really fast and stuff that doesn't make any sense. No, it but didn't. it looked cool. It 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 definitely looked cool. But now in Star Trek Insurrection, didn't that scoop thing also have like a solar sail looking thing to it that was going to eat up the briar patch? That was going to be the reason why they had to relocate the Baku. Yeah, but that yeah, that wasn't really a solar sail or yeah, anything. Yeah, but, but it kind of had that look to it, right? It had the same look. Like a, it, it was, was kind of like like filter or something. Yeah, it, yeah, it looked kind of like a scoop. I mean, it looked like like a well, it definitely looked like like a deploying umbrella. And then it was, I think, it was supposed to be some kind of scoop that was going to scoop up all the the energy that was making people live forever or something. Yeah, I, I hated that part of the movie. Yeah, I, I liked the movie because it was like. Finally, we don't have like thousands of people dying, or oh my God, Earth's in trouble again. Uh, so I kind of like that part of the the movie, but yeah, there were bits of it that weren't that good. Yeah, I'm just not a. I don't think big gigantic machines with lots and lots of little tiny moving parts is at all practical. Which 
you know, both uh, both Insurrection had that problem. Um, Nemesis had that same problem, and then the new Star Trek movie with the the uh, Nero ship again had the incredibly large, tiny moving mechanisms for things outside of the ship to move around. It just it doesn't seem practical to me at all. Seems like one little one little wrench in the wrong place suddenly you can't half of the arm falls off or something. I don't know. Right, right. I don't know. I get, I, I dig you. I dig you. I, I kind of buy the Nero one because you know supposedly it's Borg uh, tech. Yeah, Borg tech, and I can kind of buy it because it kind of looks like Borg piping and you know tentacle things. But the other two uh, I thought were just kind of overdone. Right, right. Um, getting back to the comic though. Mm-hmm. Um. There was a part near the end of part... There was a... Spock says something towards the end of part, part one, which is, we will survive only seconds in the vacuum of deep sea. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. Deep sea. Now, why, why didn't he say deep space? I mean, okay. Does he really? I, he says deep sea. So, it's like, you know, I, I know you're trying to make this like a pirate thing, but it's like, I don't know, I, th- I thought that kind of like, was kind of weird. Why spacesuits, Captain? Without them, we would survive only seconds in the, vac- in the vacuum of deep sea. Nope, you're deep, right. Deep and sea. I, I totally misread it when I first read through this. Well, deep space makes sense. Deep yeah. sea doesn't. <laughs> and it's like they even have enough room to go ahead and write space, but it's like, oh, well, Let's, we'll make it C instead and have a bunch of blank space at the end. Right. <laughs> Dude, that's funny. <laughs> I thought that was odd. Uh, you're right. Uh, I also thought it was rather handy that they had the Romulan, Romulan cloaking device on board. Um, I thought I thought when they when they nabbed it in the um, Enterprise incident, third season episode, that they were supposed to grab it to uh, bring it back to the Federation so that the techs could study it and figure out how to, how it work how it works overcome it maybe create our own um, right. but we just had it I mean it was on the ship I mean they didn't get this mission until uh, 48 hours before they had to go on it so it's not like they could go and say hey this is a special mission we think we'll need the cloaking device back could you give it to us let's install it no I mean they, they went right I mean at least I assume 48 hours I assume they went directly from getting the orders to going on the mission. Um, no, I it agree. It just seemed it just kind of, you know, kind of handy that they that they have it. Yeah, and this is the first time we've seen it in the gold key stuff. So right. I mean, we we saw it one other time in a DC uh, episode or a DC comic earlier, where it just randomly they had the the cloaking device uh, again, but. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It it should not be on the Enterprise. Right. It should be studied somewhere by some Federation uh, eggheads. Exactly. Until it could be imp- deployed in Defiant-class starships in the future. Right. Or I think that they would more try to find weaknesses in it so that they can detect... I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I think that was their main objective. But... Right. Okay. So that's all I have to say. 
Yeah, well, we we ended up having a lot to say about a comic that I didn't think we would have much to say about at all, <laughs> except just how awesome it was. <laughs> totally awesome. Except for the pirate part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go on a limb here and say that I think this is the best gold key we've read so far. That you are on a thin branch there, my friend. <laughs> Although, quite frankly, <laughs> we are talking gold key here. Yeah. So, so out of the eleven previous issues, I think this is this has been my most enjoyable one so far. Cool. Good. I I, I don't remember enough of the other ones. I guess I'm just remembering the the really egregious bad ones more. Like so, I got planet. Oh God! And the planet quick change. The planet quick change. Yes, all that and more. The okay. two Justins. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the list goes on, doesn't it? Well, you maybe we should uh, get on to the next one before we uh, we we spend too much more time on this one. True. Let's let's move on. Okay. Another, Another fine gold key, uh, and it's issue number 13. Exactly. Lucky 13. Lucky. And, and, in my and neck that, of the woods, that's unlucky. And that luck brushed off on the on this comic, I'll tell you. You ready? Let's do it, Ken. I have the pleasure of doing the synopsis. This is uh, Star Trek issue number 13, titled Dark Traveler. February 1972 is the published date. Okay. Cover shows Kirk, Spock, and a guy in a pink robe fighting mostly hand-to-hand with humanoid robots from the 1950s. At least they look, they look like robots from the 1950s. The inside panel, uh, the inside title page shows Kirk, Spock, and a third, third guy that's probably McCoy crouched down behind rubble of a shattered city trying to avoid laser blasts from a red flying vehicle piloted by a robot. Spock says the phasers have no effect on their attackers, and Kirk says, learn how to pray, boy. The Enterprise is passing by the lifeless planet Xeron 2 when Spock's scanners pick up an as-yet unexplained discharge of energy. Suddenly, a stranger in robes appears on the bridge. He calls himself a traveler that wants to go home, and the Enterprise is the only vehicle in the vicinity to take him there. The Traveler demonstrates his control over the ship and several crew members who attempt to stop him. The ship is going where the Traveler wants it to go, and there's not much the crew can do about it. Scotty reports that they are going to warp 8 and increasing. Spock says the atomic structure of the ship has been altered so it it can now take the higher speeds without tearing itself apart. The Traveler tells the story of his idyllic world, where robots do all the work, so people have scads of free time to indulge themselves. Over time, his people lost the will to challenge themselves and grow, so they ended up stagnating. The Traveler wanted more than that, so he traveled the cosmos in search of enlightenment that the rest of his people no longer cared about. After apparently many, many years on the road, the Traveler is tired and wants to return home, but since he does not have quite enough strength left to make the whole trip, he has commandeered and modified the Enterprise to take him home. They arrive at the Traveler's homeworld, establish orbit, get control of the ship back, and mostly due to Spock, get an invitation down to the Traveler's Paradise Homeworld. The foursome find a shattered world, 
which surprises the traveler. Suddenly, a man running towards them is being pursued by a robot in a red flying car. The man is shot in the back. Then the robot comes around after the Enterprise crew. The three phaser blasts from Kirk and Company have no effect on the air car, but the beam that issues from the traveler's staff blows it out of the air. The badly injured man stays alive long enough to tell them that it's Nicklon, the manager of the robot works, and so happens the traveler's brother who turned the robots against the people. Nicklon has taken over and killed many, many people in his process in the process of taking over the world. The traveler is bent on stopping his brother. Spock takes the lead, not Kirk, in offering the services of the Enterprise and her crew to help restore freedom to the traveler's people. The foursome make their way to the main city on what uh on what else but a flying carpet that is propelled by the Traveler's all-powerful staff. They make their way to the central government building and find it guarded by many robots. They are discovered and after a mighty battle are taken prisoner. They find themselves taken in front of Nicklon. Nicklon shows no remorse over what he has done and explains how he was treated like a flawed afterthought. A dwarf! assigned to the robot works, away from the godlike people like the Traveler. They get taken down to a dungeon and put into a cell. Once in the cell, they assess their, their situation as dire. They set a trap for the robot guard outside their cell by electrifying the cell door with the electric light fixture in the cell. The door is opened before the robot is disabled, so they are free. They release the other dungeon prisoners, and all of them make their way to Nicklon. Spock dons a robot disguise and acts like the others are prisoners he is taking to Nicklon. When they get close enough, a battle ensues. The humans do well against the guards, the robot guards, but then Nicklon springs his trap. The platform Nicklon is on begins to rise up and show it is mounted on top of a giant robot, of course. Nicolon says he will crush them all, but before that can happen, Spock grabs the Traveler's all-powerful staff away from a nearby robot and gives it to the Traveler. Now that it's had a chance to recharge, the Traveler uses it to unleash a devastating blast that topples the huge robot. Nicolon tumbles out of it and is apprehended by the Traveler. Nicolon cries that all his plans are ruined, And so are the robots, since his master control over all the robots is in his melted giant robot. The Traveler promises to rebuild his world, only better this time. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam up, and the Enterprise takes off for their next adventure. The end. So, what do you think, D? D? The episode, or the issue, was... It was a gold key issue. It was that. Uh, you know, we we did Gold Key for a couple episodes in the very beginning, and then we stopped doing it because we weren't quite enjoying them as much as we wanted to. Um, and then now we've come back and revisited it, and and uh, I'm ready to move on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there are so many more issues, Donovan. 
There are, but we're on 13, and there's only, what, 60, uh, 60 issues of Gold Key altogether, <laughs> so... They got a lot of issues. They were producing comics for a while. Well, yeah, and they weren't even monthly. They were, like, once every quarter, yeah. but they had, like, years and years and years to accumulate quite a number. Right. Um, anyways, maybe that's a little unfair. Uh, the, this issue is not horrible. Uh, it had a lot of, you know, WTF moments that uh, I think distracted me quite a bit, like the melting robot mm. and the traveler being all-powerful, that he could leave the planet and do all these miraculous things, but he can't get back home. Yeah. Did it he, ever explain that? He doesn't have the strength. So was but, he tired? Is he old? I don't know. But he does amazing things. And he was obviously gone a long time. He talks about seeing galaxies uh, crumble or says, something. He says he's watched star systems die. Star systems die. Okay, well, you know. So I guess he could have caught them right at the end. <laughs> As opposed to waiting around until they died. Right. But uh, it seems like he's been out and about for quite a long time. And he doesn't appear to have a ship or anything, so I don't know how he gets around. Yeah. It just reminded me a lot of... Uh... Star Trek V, the the quote unquote God character. Oh. Who needed the Enterprise as oh. his chariot to get get right. back to civilization. If he's God, why does he need a starship? Exactly. That's what I kept thinking and I'm like, Come on, Kirk, say it. <laughs> and didn't he? It, I don't know. I think not, they did not at in one this point. one, obviously. No, not in this one. But yeah, yeah. Oh I, yeah, yeah. But in Star Trek five. Yeah, yeah. That I was that did. was that was his line that you just quoted. Yeah. With your superb Shatner, um, it was—it it wasn't an overt Shatner impression, but it was Shatner-esque. Yeah, it was good. I like <clears> it. It. Oh, thank you, thank you. So uh, I was—I was kind of excited when I started reading this, and he was referred to as the Traveler, and he kind of had the same kind of powers that uh, the Traveler has in Star Trek: The Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you get that vibe, or was I just really harping on the name? No, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I thought the... the, the, the were the Travelers and Next Gen have kind of robe-like uh, outfits? Uh, no, he he just wore, you know, the uh, random unitard type thing, like, like a lot oh. of the people on Star Trek <laughs> Next Generation wore. Yeah, unitard. <laughs> That's but, retarded. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but no, he he the the name obviously, um, but also uh, the ability to travel around a lot. So yeah, and and you know maybe I'm misremembering, but wasn't he able to manipulate the Enterprise to go faster than it should? Maybe. Or maybe. am I thinking of the zero one zero one zero one episode where those little binary aliens did that? Or I don't remember both. Uh, maybe both. I don't know. I don't remember. Can't, yeah, can't tell you. I get a lot of my uh, traveler stuff mixed up because I've read a lot of the uh, post um, post movie uh, novels, mm. and uh, and you know every time Wesley shows up, you know he he has the traveler powers because he's been the traveler's apprentice and travelerized. Yeah, so I mean he has basically he basically almost has like almost Q like powers where he can manipulate people and manipulate uh, his surroundings. So hmm. I don't know how much of that was actually in that episode because it's been a while. Right. But but anyways, th- this guy seemed to have the similar powers, and then he started sp- 
you know, running around with that cane that shot laser beams. Right. And then I'm like, well, how much power is he he himself have versus how much that that cane has? Sure, the technology. Well, where did the cane come from? Did did you catch that? No, they never talked about that. Well, the old man in the cave taught him how to use the powers, because so I'm assuming that he's like one of the only really? ones. I didn't get that. Oh, you didn't get that? I didn't, I mean, I I knew he talked about um talking meeting with mystics or something, but did it actually told him that's where he got some of his powers? Uh, I sat down at the feet of the old age interstellar mystics and delved deep into the boundless secrets of the supernatural. So oh. I guess. I guess I took that and assumed that that meant that uh, that's where he learned. Because he's sitting there floating in front of the uh, the old man. Right. Hmm. But cool. anyways. I get that. So, um, so this, this Paradise homeworld, when it was Paradise and not a wrecked, uh, steaming, uh, wrecked place, um, they sure do play a lot of golf there. Well, they had all that free time. Exactly, and then uh, you know the women had bikinis, so they were technologically advanced. So right. uh, not bad. Yeah, I thought it was funny that everybody in these normal pictures are wearing, I would say, normal clothes or bathing suits. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And then you have the traveler sporting a robe, <laughs> full length, like, dark like robe, a monk or something. Right, right. Uh, I didn't quite catch why why he was such an outcast in his fashion sense. Maybe that's well, why he, he was left, he, he was, was just always, different. He was always picked on. Nah, nah. He's just different. He doesn't care who knows it. Well, his brother kind of wears the same outfit later, which I thought was weird. And his brother does not look much like him. The traveler looks like a tall, powerful man, and the brother Nicklon is quite the uh, I guess uh short uh, runty guy. Right, but their faces and their 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 faces look exactly the same. Oh, do they? You didn't think so? I didn't. I I didn't compare them. Uh, but man, I'm doing it now. Yeah, it was just like mm. the traveler always had his hood up, and the brother always had his hood down. Down. That was right. how I knew who was who. And Nicklon has a purple robe, at least in the few shots I'm looking at, where the traveler is dark. Right. But uh, yeah, good point. They both have a cleft in their chin, and I kind of see that. Well, like like so many of these gold key issues, the bad guy's always a Lex Luthor clone that <laughs> has an affinity for purple. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, like I've said before, the old Lex Luthor always wore that purple suit, so I don't know, maybe it was just a comic book thing. They're like, if you're bald and you're evil, you gotta wear purple. Didn't Joker wear purple? Yeah, but he sometimes. wasn't bald. He had that glorious mane of green hair. I know. I don't, man. I'm just saying. I'm pointing out. Red Another Skull. Bad guy. Red Skull was bald, but he didn't wear purple. Mm, no. Well, we could we could jump all over the place and find examples. <laughs> all right. Uh, you mentioned it. I got to talk about it. <clears throat> A freaking flying magic carpet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know they had choices. They had choices of what they could do in this book, and they chose a flying magic carpet that is propelled by, uh, by like, rocket flames coming out of the uh, all-powerful staff. Yeah, he looked like a gondolier or something from, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, Venice or something. Mm-hmm. He's standing at the end with his little rocket uh, 
Rocket Staff. Uh, I was <laughs> I was really disappointed in that. Show. <laughs> uh, yeah, another thing I was disappointed in is that McCoy said almost nothing, and when he did say things, really, it wasn't much. Yeah. Uh, and also, again, huge focus. And I mentioned this a little bit in the narration. Huge focus on Spock. And uh, and also, again, Spock calling a lot of shots and what's going on. Uh, and, and Kirk almost, um, you know, relegated second to fiddle. a second banana. Yeah. Which, you know, in the TV series, <clears throat> um, there were a few too many times when Kirk seemed to, you know, out of nowhere come up with a scientific solution that really should have came from Spock. Um like in the immunity syndrome, you know, with the giant space amoeba or whatever, <laughs> where where Kirk is saying, antibodies. So it's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's like the other way. It's like, you know, give people some room to come up with ideas except for you, Shatner. Come on. Right. Uh, where in some of these comics, it's just, it's just the opposite way. I mean... Uh, it just seems like there's such a focus on Spock, which I, you know, he was a popular character, I guess. But right, I I don't think this this story is as guilty of over overdoing Spock as uh, some of the later Marvel ones that we uh, read. Yeah, where like you know at times like Spock could do anything like. He can. <laughs> he can not only read minds, but he can manipulate minds. He can put thought. Oh. Uh, you know, he can read information and then put it in somebody else's mind so that they're yep. just as smart as him. Yep. I mean, those 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 later comics were really bad at giving Spock way too many powers. Exactly. Uh, but I do agree with you on this. It's uh, it's it's, but Gold Key does that a lot. Spock's the more popular character. I guess that's what kids wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Bones oh. is just uh, pushed off to the side. Yeah, I mean, way third banana. Well, you remember a few times in the beginning of the Gold Key stuff, a lot of times McCoy was the damsel in distress. So the three of them would be- beam down, McCoy would get captured, and then Spock and Kirk had to somehow rescue him. So, I mean, that's, that's not what uh, McCoy's character was in the show. No, no. He was not action hero guy either, but uh, he certainly was not the damsel in distress. Well, anything else about this one? Big giant robot didn't like... Oh, that was it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. About the big giant robot, I I just wrote a comment. I was like, uh, the brother seems to be overcompensating for something. Couldn't he just buy a fancy car instead of trying to take over the planet with killer robots? Yes, perhaps a large SUV. Or 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 four wheel truck. Or, there you go. You know, I mean, I a know big, that he... a big a big big monster truck. Well, that's pretty much what he got. But then he tries <laughs> to take over the world with it. Yeah. 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 Well, and again, this is a gold key has quite a few issues so far that uh, deal with a society where people have stopped doing stuff for themselves and the robots have taken over. Yep. So definitely something to avoid. Uh, my last comment, which I'm just noticing now looking at it, is for a prison cell, that's a pretty fancy electric lamp. <laughs> I mean, it's like it, a it's, chandelier. It, 
Oh, it, it looks like a, like a crummy 1950s kind of, uh, you know, hanging lamp kind of thing with, like, little, like long little fins on it or something. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that's, that's some nice stuff for a dungeon. Yeah. And it's sad that they, they resorted to the, hey, guard, come quick. Somebody's, Somebody's sick. sick. <laughs> Boy, how many times did they use that? Yeah. Well, at least McCoy got to say that. Okay. Yeah, that was his one line, his big moment. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, get your line straight. You're not going to get any more in this issue. <laughs> All right, so we'll jump into gold key number 14 now, if, if you're ready to go, Ken. Oh, man. After those other two, I am ready for some dinosaur goodness. Go. Yeah, so uh, I did forget, and I think you forgot as well, to uh, go over the credits. Uh, all three of these books were done by the same two gentlemen. I only know the writers and the artists, um, so I'll go ahead and mention it now. Okay, so all three of these books were written by Lynn Wynn, who is the co-creator of one of my favorite comic book characters, Swamp Thing, which Whoa, we discussed. Really? What's that? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I know. And he's been writing, uh, he started with issue number nine on the gold key, and he'll stay with it until issue number 16. Wow. So we've been covering his stuff, and we didn't even know it. Uh, I obviously got this information um, outside of the comic book because there's no credits in the book itself. So uh, there's several websites, uh, including Memory Alpha, uh, the Star Trek uh, wiki, uh, that that lists him as the uh, author of these these greatness, these great That's comics. Cool. That's cool. And the artist, and he's like the main artist on the Gold Key. He he started with issue number three, and will stay on until thirty-seven. His name is Alberto Giolatti. You're kidding me. I could have sworn it would be an Asian guy or something, but no, yeah, I always guy. thought that it was like farmed out to the Philippines, but I guess. Uh, it's this gentleman. Uh, he is from Italian descent, born in Rome. And uh, when Gold Key, or I guess it wasn't Gold Key, but when they republished the Gold Key um, graphic novels, you know, a consolidation called the the Key Collection, uh-huh. there's a little um, background on him because, you know, he did so many of the issues. Right. So, anyways, unfortunately, they're not actually listed in the books, but... Oh, it's too bad. Yes. And I thought that was very odd. But but a lot of the art is pretty consistent in the gold key, and now I know why. Right, and I'm going to have to go back and look at issue number one and two and and see if I can tell the difference, because I always thought that this art was pretty consistent with the first two issues. Yeah, me too. But anyway, so uh, giving them credit for these. Uh, so we'll go ahead and jump into the synopsis. Uh, issue number 14 is entitled The Enterprise Mutiny, and it came out May 1972. The cover shows a huge red stegosaurus-looking creature attacking the crew, with Spock and McCoy firing their phasers at the creature, and a prone Kirk lies on the ground in obvious pain. So, as all gold keys starts with a splash page, and this one shows Kirk firing at McCoy and Spock, exclaiming that they are dirty traitors, and that he will burn them both. That was my dramatic reading for the day. So, the official story starts off with the Enterprise in orbit of Beta 2. 
A larger-than-normal away team is on the surface, and they decide to split up, with Kirk taking a few men and Spock taking the rest. Sometime later, Scotty contacts Spock to inform him that he's been trying to hail Kirk, but he's not getting any answers. Spock and his men take off to find the wayward captain. When they do find the other away team, they find the men splayed across the ground, unconscious, with a huge green Tyrannosaurus Rex-looking creature who has a huge horn coming out of his forehead, standing above them and about to gobble them up. They fire on the creature, and it retreats. Uh, Spock is able to revive Kirk, and you can tell that he's in obvious pain. He, he, he's, he's hurting. So they beam back to the ship, and McCoy bandages them up. Kirk is, uh, Kirk is called to the bridge because there's an important communication from Starfleet. He is ordered to rendezvous with a, an ambassador, and then they head off to the Omega system, or then they're supposed to head off to the Omega system, to try to prevent the planet from succeeding from the Federation and joining the Klingon Empire. A short time later, the ambassador is aboard, and they are racing towards Omega, uh, the Omega system. Never actually says the planet. It's always just Omega system. So I'm assuming it's a different named planet, but it's never given one. So en route, Scotty informs the captain that they are cruising at a leisurely warp 2. And then he is perplexed when, and actually questions Kirk's on, on these orders when Kirk orders him to increase speed to a very speedy warp 4. Scotty's questioning of Kirk's orders are not handled very well by the captain. He snaps at him for possible disobedience. So Kirk is on a very short uh, fuse here. Because a short time later, Kirk is giving the ambassador a tour when a crewman accidentally bumps into the ambassador. Kirk flies off the handle again and orders the clumsy crewman to report to the brig and await his punishment. Spock and McCoy have a quick sidebar about Kirk's odd behavior. McCoy thinks that he might have a concussion from his little uh, venture with the dinosaur earlier. Kirk happens to come across them at that exact moment and again gets into a huff, stating that they are plotting against him. Kirk returns to the bridge and orders Sulu this time to adjust course and travel through the B-Gamma Maelstrom. Sulu reminds the captain that no ship has ever done that and survived. Kirk will have none of that and demands the course be changed, and very soon we see the Enterprise flying into the storm. So part two starts off with a brief and unnecessary recap of chapter one. The Enterprise is in the middle of the maelstrom, and there are all kinds of creatures attacking the hull from outside. Uh, it's left to the reader to wonder if these creatures are real or just some sort of representation of the dangers of the storm which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. Scotty reports that the ship cannot take any more of it. Kirk orders them to pull out, and the ship is nearly destroyed, but eventually is able to pull free from the monstrous, ghostly hands that are trying to snatch it back in. The ambassador makes a statement that the Klingons are right about how irrational the Federation is, and leaves the bridge. Kirk orders maximum warp. When Scotty says that the ship cannot take it after the previous beating... Kirk again does not take this very well and pulls out his phaser and blasts Scotty in the spine. Spock, McCoy, and Sulu discuss the events in sickbay. And Spock recommends a mutiny to remove Kirk from command until they are able to evaluate him. They return to the bridge and attempt to reason with Kirk one last time. 
Kirk again goes a little nuts and starts firing at everyone and, and leaves the bridge through the elevator. And it is very clearly marked elevator. Kirk is several floors down and blasting everyone who just happens to be walking down the hall. Spock and McCoy eventually catch up with him in, uh, near the shuttle bay. They are not able to stop Kirk from entering the ambassador's shuttle and leaving the ship. Spock informs the ambassador that everything is going according to plan. Spock orders the Enterprise to return to Beta 2. When they arrive, they find the shuttle and track Kirk's signal to a nearby cave. Once there, they find Kirk sitting in an office chair with four or five bald men standing around him with phasers drawn. Kirk exclaims that it's about time Spock and the others got there, and then we see that there is a second Kirk that is standing amongst the bald men. We are informed that the bald Lex Luthor-looking men are actually Klingons, and that they had disguised one of their own to look like Kirk, and that is who has been on the Enterprise uh, all this time. And it's an elaborate effort to discredit the Federation in the eyes of the Ambassador. The fake Kirk tries to make a run for it, but the real Kirk is right behind him. Spock eventually catches up with the two of them a short time later and is confused as to which one is the real McCoy. I mean, Kirk. Pun intended there. Get it? R. <laughs> uh, when one of the Kirks tells Spock to kill the other one, Spock knows that this must be the imposter and stuns him, knowing that Kirk would never order the death of another. To wrap things up, the Ambassador sees the deviousness of the Klingons and will work with the Federation in order to uh, keep his planet from succeeding. The end. Uh-huh. So That was the mystery. Well, what would you think about the uh, Kirk-on-Kirk fight? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, scratch your eyes out. Uh, not you know, not that much. It, it reminded me of Star Trek VI when we had Captain Kirk and Captain Kirk fighting each other, and the uh, Klingon ambassador didn't know which one to, to shoot, and they were both saying, "Kill me, kill him. He's the he's the uh, impostor." Right. Remember, impostor. <laughs> impostor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And it just. It, it, and because there was two Kirks, it reminded me a little bit of uh, what was that? Um, that one where there actually was two Kirks. Uh, well, one of them in was the original the, series. What was that? Are, what was the name are you that? talking about the one where they split into good Kirk versus bad Kirk? Yeah, by the transporter accident because of that strange ore. Yes. Right. What is that? It's not Mirror Darkly. What is that one? No. no it's no. like the third or fourth episode. Uh, it's first season, definitely. Um,. I really should know, but I, it, it's not coming to me at the moment. Well, let it come to you. Let it soak in. <laughs> you really want to know. So I, re- I posted a Facebook page that showed these four panels of the Kirk and Kirk fight with four panels from the Star Trek VI uh, fight. Right. And our loyal listener, Brian, uh-huh. <laughs> pointed out that it actually reminded him of a third season episode, I know, your favorite, uh, entitled... And by the way, that first season episode is The Enemy Within. Yeah, The Enemy Within. That one uh, where he gets split by a transporter. Accident. Yeah. He was... Uh, Brian mentioned that it reminded him of the episode Whom Gods Destroy. 
Ooh. Hmm. I don't know the title. Well, because it's third season, and you hate all things third season. Not all things. <laughs> they just tend to be weak. Right. But in that one, uh, there's a Kirk android, and um, then there's a Kirk and Kirk fight. And in that in that specific episode, uh, Spock is the one that has to decide which is the uh, imposter. Imposter. Uh-huh. Oh, I thought you were doing that purposely. Okay. I'm not. That's that's the weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> Imposter. How interesting how many times there have been uh, two Kirks. You know, a man who has that kind of ego just can't fit into one role. I think you're right about that. <laughs> I think you're right. And wasn't... You know, that, may, that, was, a, that be... was a joke. If Shatner's listening, total joke. I don't think your ego's that big. Uh, okay. I don't know if you're right about that, but... <laughs> I just gotta cover my base. I don't want the chat mad at me. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he listens. Sure uh, so did you see his new book? I did not. Or I saw that it came out, but I have not purchased it. I, neither have I. I, just I am interested in Sulu's new book that will be coming out soon. Um, uh, I think it's called Down to Earth, because his first one was To the Stars, and his second one will be called Down to Earth. And I'm more curious on that one because it's you know more of his his backstory, you know because because some things have come out about uh, George Takei since uh, his last autobiography. Oh, so his first one didn't uh, address his uh, which team he was playing on. I don't believe so. I think that was oh. uh, before he came out oh. officially. Oh. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah, I uh, I was at the uh, comic book convention here recently and uh, he was there and he was mentioning that that he's working on it and it should be out pretty soon. Oh, cool. Yeah. Good. So, anyways, I didn't know that he was in a concentration camp during World War II. They called it, didn't they call it like a detention camp? I mean, the, yeah. yeah. Call it what you want to, but I mean, I wasn't concentration, well, I don't know. I, I, I hope it wasn't that bad, but I understand it was bad, but, I mean, hopefully they weren't torturing anybody. Yeah, I hope not, too. Anyways, that's not what we're talking about. We're here to talk about Star Trek. Yes, we are, especially this gold key issue. So. Which, there are so many uh, accuracies that they have really uh, outdone themselves in this issue. As you've done in the past, uh, do you happen to have a top ten list? Uh, I do. <laughs> How did I, I? Actually, now that you mention it. How did I know? It, it seems like you always pull out your top ten lists when we're doing a gold key issue. Well, there's just so many. <laughs> there's just so many. It's like, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, now that we know the people that actually did the artwork and did the scripting, because sometimes it's equal measure of uh, things just do not look right. It's like they never watch the show. Or they do things uh, in the script that just aren't right. Or they say things that are just not right. Uh, sometimes it's funny to know whether it's the script that's going to be more off or the artwork that's going to be more off. But, uh, yeah, we have, we have plenty of things that are off in this one. May I? Yes, please. Okay. First off, um, in the title page, um, the, I think it's the narration calls, uh, Spock and McCoy, the ship's first officers. When obviously... Uh, only Spock is the first officer. 
uh, McCoy is not a first officer. I mean, he's not even in, in even in the direct command structure. Um, actually, that's a very good question. I mean, tech, from a rank standpoint, I mean, he's the ship's doctor. That's it. He is, and he can take command if if there's a medical if, emergency or if, reason like that. Right. But the main point is. They're not both first officers. A ship only has one first officer. So and Otherwise, it would be second officers. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. I guess. And, and at first, I was thinking maybe they were saying, like, ooh, well, these are the, these are the two most important officers next to the captain. Uh, but no. First officer is a very specific uh, definition uh, in, the, uh, in the Navy today and definitely what we've seen in the future with Star Trek. Which we know it's gonna come come true, sure. Right. Uh, let's see. So that 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 was a that was a great one. So I thought I'd mention that one. Um, also in that initial spot, they're talking about how McCoy is saying his phaser's almost empty. Uh, and uh, they're talking about how the phasers. Oh well, they are red in color. I mean, phasers are not red in color. Uh, tricorders are red in color too in this comic. Which is like, well, so basically all their equipment is red in color, which is totally wrong. Well, it's, I mean, just like Superman's hair is always kind of blue-black. I mean, his hair is black, but they depict it as with the blue sheen just so that it wouldn't be a big blob of black. So I think because the phasers are supposed to be black, they're just giving it some sort of shading. It's red, Donovan. I know. It's quite literally red. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> well, make it blue. I mean, uh, some of the phasers that they in the show they actually had like a blue, uh, a metallic blue look to them, at least in the middle part. I mean, use it use a color. Anyway, it's if, if they if they did it blue, then it would look too much like their pants or their shirt. Speaking of that, <laughs> again as usual, we can't get the uniform colors right. So. Not only uh, are the command staff's shirts a green, a color green rather than gold, um, but McCoy's uh, tunic is uh, also green as opposed to blue. But, of course, Spock, he has a correct uh, blue uh, shirt. And I know this has come up before in other issues, but what the heck. I just thought I'd bring it up again. Um, Okay, Uh, another fun one is, so is this number three? Okay, so um, so Spock is on the planet, and he's talking to Scotty on the Enterprise, and they're talking into, that's right, tricorders. They're talking into their tricorders. <laughs> Again, you know, maybe, maybe the communicators are too small to show up, they figure, or something uh, on the comic. I don't know what the reason is, but they're talking into their tricorders. And certainly Scotty does not have to be talking into a tricorder. I mean, he's on the ship. He's in the captain's chair, you know. You know, press the button, Scotty. It's on the armrest. Anyway. Uh, okay. So um, when Kirk takes the Starfleet Priority One message, and he's on the bridge, so he's he's all bandaged up and goes up to the bridge. That's after he was uh, he was hurt on the planet. Um, they show the view screen, and Kirk is in his his con chair, the captain's chair, and he's looking forward, and the navigation and helmsman stations are huge. I mean, it's like, it's way wide. It looks like something out of NASA mission control. True. Did, did you notice that? I bet oh, you yeah. Did. I bet you did. 
So it's like jeepers. What? What? I mean, but they sh- from different vantage points, you're seeing the controls in, on the bridge. It's like, and I've got another one on that point too. Why all of a sudden make it look like an old-fashioned 1960s, uh, you know, NASA mission control thing? I just don't get it. Anyway. Uh, okay. So uh, another one is, um, and I don't know whether this was purpose or not, but there appears to be kind of a, I almost hate to, hate to say it, but it's so obvious. They've got like a halo around the head of the Starfleet officer that Kirk speaks to, who's given him his orders to uh, to get the ambassador and stuff. That uh, it's kind of, it's, it's tan, I agree. It's kind of like a tan color kind of thing, but it's like, like five different panels that show this guy show this, you know, almost halo-sized uh, circle around his head. So I don't know whether that's just coincidence that just happened to be the pattern behind the guy or whether they're, you know, it's almost like a religious deification of the Starfleet guy. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be something in the background, but I totally see what I, you're I, saying. I, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. It just seems kind of odd that that thing would be there. It's just a perfect size for like a halo. Anyway. Right. You did notice that that guy has a Enterprise logo on his shirt, not one of the oh. Starbase Six looking. Ah, good point. So that's another one I didn't write down. So there's another one. Um, when they're in the process of, well, they're actually in the middle of transporting the ambassador aboard, and the order is given: pipe him aboard. Pipe him aboard. Have you ever heard the term? pipe him aboard when you're trying to transport somebody? Right. You either say beam or you say tube him aboard because, see, the internet is a series of tubes. Exactly. Not pipes. Tubes. Exactly. So, come on. Get with it. Okay. So, uh, when the ambassador does come aboard, uh, Kirk and Spock are saluting him. I mean, an old-fashioned kind of, you know, 20th century Navy or whatever armed forces you want to do, salute. Uh, and other than like uh, like Klingons, you know, like hitting their chests and throwing their, their hands out and stuff, um, you don't see a lot of traditional old-fashioned saluting going on in uh, Star Trek. And especially Starfleet. Do you remember seeing any saluting going on? Uh, not that I can think of. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I thought think, that was weird too. I think that was one of the things that... Uh, that Gene Roddenberry, being an ex-Navy guy, uh, probably said, "You know, we don't do we don't do saluting anymore. Never did like it." So, I think that must be one of those uh, rules he, he he established at some point. So while they're traveling to planet Omega, and by the way, I'm just calling it Omega. Good point about them not saying the real planet. But uh, the 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 narration says they are traveling faster than light, but it also says the impulse engines are driving them. Arg. Excuse me, sir, don't you realize that impulse is for sublight travel? Anyway. So, that was another one that was a little annoying. Um, now, this one's a little bit more entertaining. Scotty, okay, so Kirk is giving the uh, orders to, uh, to go faster. And Scotty's on the bridge. And not only that, he, he's the guy piloting the ship. So, I guess Sulu wasn't around at this point, uh, wasn't on duty at this point. And what's even more interesting with uh, Scotty driving the ship is he's doing it using what appears to be a slot machine. I mean, so we talked before about how it looked like mission control uh, as far as how big all the controls were and everything. 
the control panels and stuff. Well, from this particular vantage point, which would be shooting backwards towards Kirk, who's in the background, um, Scott, Scotty's using is, is pulling this big old lever that looks like uh, the arm of a one-armed bandit, a good old-fashioned slot machine thing, and it's really tall and stuff, and I it looks like a slot machine. I think that's the manual control, like what Riker used in uh, Nemesis. Oh, I mean not I Nemesis. Insurrection. Insurrection, right, when he was flying around gathering whatever he was gathering to. Mm. Yes? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's a shame they didn't do a comic book of that movie, because I could nitpick that one to death, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in that movie, why did they put all these shiny, shiny metal plates on the sides of the phasers? Like the phaser rifles? It just looked, made it look so cheap. I don't know. Was that an insurrection or was that a nemesis? That was. Uh, I'm sorry, nemesis. That was nemesis. Yeah, insurrection was the one where they had data completely out of character talking about how his boobs felt perkier, and <laughs> I'm like, okay, I know you. Do. <laughs> I know you're supposed to have the Pinocchio effect going on, but you know what boobs are. You know you don't have them. You don't need to tell per, uh, uh, Borf that yours are are more bouncy. Yeah. <laughs> I just hate well, okay, there's so, so it, much of that movie that I hate. It's been a while since I saw that movie, but uh didn't they was that in the beginning when he was overcoming them uh reprogramming or something? You know when he was going totally wacko at the beginning? No. Well that that's the that's the movie, but no, this was way later when um when everybody's been on the planet for a while and they're realizing that they're reverse aging. Oh and okay. he hears Beverly and oh, Troy right. talking about it, so he walks over to. Oh him, right, right, right! I got you. Mentions it to him, and you're just like <sighs> groaning. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, All I, right. I I was okay with that movie. I mean, it, it had some problems, but you know, I was kind of okay with it. At, at least they didn't, you know. Well, whatever. Uh, okay, so uh, okay, so Sky's on the bridge using the slot machine, yes, and then he he then Scotty. <laughs> protests Kirk's order to, to increase speed from warp 2 to warp 4 because it's kind of fast. It's like, really? I mean, you know, they go at, at high warp all the time. I mean, when yeah, you get up around 14? 8 or 7, well, yeah. And we all know that's patently impossible. I mean, what's evolution going to do if you will go to 14? Bad enough with 10. I don't know. Yeah, I thought that was crazy. I'm like, why would... You... Why wouldn't you make it nine or eight? You know, you're cruising at warp seven, and you asked to be increased to eight or nine. That I would buy, but from warp two to warp four, that doesn't seem like an abnormal request. No. In fact, I would wonder why you're taking such a leisurely pace. Yeah, in the first place, or even four. Right. I mean, if right. You're getting there so fast, and then later on, when they take the risk of going through that stupid whirlpool thing. It's like, you know, obviously Kirk is really trying to impress somebody. So why didn't you just go up to eight before or, you know, whatever? I don't know. Anyway, that's okay. Um, another thing is uh, later when he takes off in the shuttlecraft, that that tan orange color thing that uh, whose shape is clearly unlike any Federation shuttlecraft I have ever seen before. Um that's an, that's an Omega shuttlecraft. Are you making that up? 
Well, no, it's supposed to be the ambassador shuttle, and it's supposed to be his personal shuttle. So I'm assuming that it's not a Federation oh, shuttle. I totally didn't get that. I mean, didn't he beam on board the ship? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm confused now. That's a very good point. Yeah, he did beam on the ship. And so not only that, they say he took, he stole a shuttlecraft. I mean, they, they say it was his shuttlecraft. Who? Uh, well, here. He has stolen a shuttlecraft and fled. I don't... Where does it say he took the Ambassador's shuttlecraft? Now, considering how different the shape uh, you're is... You're right. You're right. Considering how different the shape and the color is, it would make a lot more sense if it was a uh, an Omega shuttlecraft. But I, I don't think there's any anything there to, to give evidence to that. Nope, you're absolutely right. I I apologize. I no, even even in my synopsis, I said that it was the ambassador's shuttle. Yeah, because it looks so wacko. That is not a Federation shuttlecraft. Nope, good point. As a matter of fact, if it looks like anything, it looks a little bit like a space 1999 Eagle uh, shuttlecraft. I'll take your word for it. A little bit, a little bit, because it's got those little the little black things in the front that are kind of tapered to a point in the front. That that's a little bit like the uh, space nineteen ninety nine ones. So you you uh, you are that unfamiliar with that old uh, TV show. I am. Yeah, it doesn't get a lot of reruns. Anyway, although I did appreciate that um, Mr. Mackey. I hope I didn't mention this before on the broadcast, but Mr. Mackey on South Park. There was a Inception takeoff episode on South Park, and Mr. Mackey went back to his childhood. At least I think that was the Inception one. Anyway, uh, they show a picture of Mr. Mackey as, a, as, a, as like an eight-year-old boy in his uh, in his bedroom. And they've got a, a Space 1999 poster uh, <laughs> showing the uh, Eagle shuttlecraft on, on the wall. I thought it was great. Huh. That is so funny. And, of course, it would be more funny if you were an old guy like me that actually was into that when he was a kid. Okay. Uh, let's see. Well, that's, that's all I bothered listing. Well, you didn't even mention that the Klingons are Lex Luthor's, yeah, and the Ambassador is Lex Luthor's as well. Yeah, they all look like Lex Luthor, as you've mentioned before in episodes. Whenever yeah, you've got yeah. aliens, nine times out of ten, they're baldies that look like Lex, Lex Luthor. Yeah, and they're always wearing purple something. So these guys are wearing uh, purple. Looks like <laughs> looks like a one piece woman's swimsuit. Kinda. Yeah, bare but, arms. Yeah. Shorty short kind of things. Yeah, I don't know why they're they're dressed like that. It's very not Klingonish. Amazing. But I, I thought it was weird that the ambassador looks exactly the same way. Exactly. He just looks so, looks just like them. In fact I thought it was I thought it was his people at first. And I'm like, Oh, it's the it's a it's an Omegan ploy and then it wasn't until Spock had to tell me that it was Klingons. Right. And it's ridiculous because they look nothing like Klingons. Right. Even with the non-bumpy heads. Yep. It's crazy. So that's all? Did, did you do all ten? Uh, sure. Okay. Well, for you guys counting at home, we'll, we'll call that. <laughs> you can write in if it wasn't ten. We can definitely come up with some more. Uh, I have one that you didn't mention that okay. I was kind of surprised since you really uh, – you really picked over the splash page, that first first page, so oh, well. There was an extra one in the front. Yeah, Kirk is wearing a wristwatch, or the fake Kirk. He's ah! wearing a gold. <laughs> yes, good point. 
he's wearing a gold wristwatch. And it looks, it's even got a stem on there, so it's a wind-up. It's a wind-up, sure is. It's a wind-up wristwatch, good point. Yeah, I just thought that was funny. And I've looked at the other pictures throughout the the, the um, issue, and he's not wearing it aside from that one page. <laughs> and like we said in the other two issues this, this week, um, I love the the artwork on the cover. It's like yeah. they, you know, it's a little cheesy, but it's they they really put a lot of work into it with yep. this stegosaurus and everybody firing on it and stuff. It looks really cool. And then right. when you see the dinosaur in the book itself, it looks nothing like that one. Nothing different. Different artist? Same artist? I mean, uh, I don't know. Again, there's no credits on there, so I don't yeah. know who the cover artists are. Also, uh, if I may make a comment on the cover, uh, at first. You see, uh, you know, Kirk's in the foreground with his green, uh, green shirt on, and then you got Spock, who's partially turned around to the to the beast, and then you got another guy that kind of looks like Spock, who's who's like right next to the darn dinosaur, ready to get squashed, and he's firing on, and and from a, I mean, when you just look at it, it looks like there's two Spocks, but actually that is McCoy. I right. mean, when you zoom into it, that is McCoy, and he's got the right color shirt, which is great. But uh, definitely, that's the last time you've seen him in a blue shirt. <laughs> well, I got to be a little forgiving on the on the coloring, Colors. just because, you I know, think you've been call- I've, I think you've been forgiving before, also. Yeah, because I mean, this was back in the four color printing press days. But, but Donnie, uh, Spock's got the right color. How hard would it be to, you know, give McCoy the same color? Okay, I yeah, know. I will. I will give. I will give you that one. I thought I, I meant the green shirt, green versus oh, gold. Oh, green versus gold. Okay, well, yeah. okay, so fine. I mean, the, the green is close, kinda. Right. But that's egregious. I mean, there, there's a shot actually with, uh, with McCoy and Spock right next to each other, and just seeing the two of them in two different colored uh, shirts is a bit disquieting. I I don't know what. I'm a little upset. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll 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 take a break here in a minute, and you can calm yourself down. Uh, I, I know three gold keys in one week is just is just too much. Sometimes it is a bit much. It is a bit much. <laughs> so, just doing a little research real quick, I, I did see that the uh, the cover artist, according to a uh, website, Star Trek Comics Checklist. Ah. It's a, it's a pretty good website. It has all all the Star Trek comic books, so all the ones that we're going to be reviewing, uh, and it. A lot of times it just gives like one sentence uh, synopsis, right. but uh, the good thing about the um, about the uh, the gold key section is that it gives you the writer, the artist, and the cover artist if known. And the cover artist for all three of these issues was uh, George Wilson. Yeah, cool. So, and it looks like just kind of scrolling down, it looks like he pretty much does all the covers that that they have listed with uh, some sort of credit. So. But well, I like I like his stuff. I think it's pretty good. It is good stuff, and uh, it's very reminiscent of the uh, you know the pirate cover, you know, and yep. all the other covers. I mean, the, the style you can see the style is similar. Right. Well, apparently the same. Yep. All right. So uh, for the last couple of times we've done Gold Key, uh, we haven't done the Elsewhere's in Gold in Star Trek just because there wasn't anything. So I'm going to wrap up all of. 1971 and all of 1972 unless you have something else to talk about no go for it 
All right. So uh, aside from the Gold Key comic books that were coming out in 1971, uh, there was also uh, a novelization of some uh, Star Trek episodes in a book called Star Trek IV by James Blish. Uh, that came out in July of 1971. And then for 1972, in February, you had Star Trek V by James Blish, which, again, was just novelizations of random episodes. And then in April, Star Trek VI by James Blish. Um, and let's see. Well, that puts us to where this, this comic book was. So um, aside from those three novelizations, there wasn't any other expanded universe-type stuff. And we're still a couple years out before the Star Trek animated series starts. Right. I guess we're thin back in those days. Yep. And uh, Ken, I know this is going to bring a tear to your eye, but I think uh, this might be the last gold key we do for quite a while. That's terrible, Donovan. <laughs> because starting next week, we're actually going to be doing a review of what probably is the the busiest time for Star Trek, and that's the 1990s. Yes. So we start with uh, DC's run of Star Trek the anime, or excuse me, Star Trek the original series and Star Trek the Next Generation. So we'll be alternating doing three issues of one, and then the next week we'll do three issues of the other. Um, we'll do annuals every every 12 issues. We'll do the annuals that came out that year. And Sprinkled out through all what was actually going on in the 90s, we're also going to do some. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Star Trek The Ongoing by IDW, which is coming out now. So we're actually going to be doing a little bit of more current. So about every three months, we'll do the last three months' worth of Star Trek The Ongoing. So we'll get a lot of the 1990s peppered in with a little uh, current stuff. So it should 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 be a good mix, I think. Yeah, that should be really good. I'm really looking forward to the uh, continuing uh, Voyages thing. So that, yeah, that'll the... be cool. And I'm very much looking forward to getting back into Picard and company. Yeah, we. I, 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 it's it's. Yeah, I'm glad we're doing that time, and I, I'm looking forward to the Deep Space Nine and and Voyager stuff. But you know, we're gonna have to do so much next gen before we get to the first De uh, Deep Space Nine, which comes out in. Uh, which came out from Malibu Comics the same time DC was doing the original series in Next Gen. But yeah, I like these Next Gens because they're based what during season two and three, and then we have the original series, which is based after Star Trek V, but before Star Trek VI. So it's going to be good stuff. Well, some of the writers are really good too. So uh, yeah, we got what Peter David and Michael Jan Friedman. There you go. Yeah, especially uh, Peter David. Quite good. Yep. Both good. Yep. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, so if you're following along, folks, next week we're going to be doing the original series, uh, Star Trek 1, 2, and 3 by DC Comics. In, and those actually came out the last three months of 1989. So if you want to read before before we start talking about it next week. So any anything else, Ken? Any house cleaning that we need to do? Nope. nope. All right. So hopefully uh, everybody enjoyed these gold keys, and uh, we, like I said, won't be getting back to gold key for quite a while. Yeah, they, 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 even with their inaccuracies and implausible tales, I mean, they have a certain charm about them. Uh, that's what I always say. You always laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, they do have a certain charm about them. I was wrong before. <laughs> you were wrong, Ken? It does happen on occasion. <laughs> anyway, so... That's it. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.